TGIM Team RE. This is episode 290. I didn't know how to stop. I wanted to stop, but I was also too scared to get sober. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Odette Kressler. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Taylor. He took his last drink on June 7th, 2019. He is from Sacramento and he's 30 years old. Taylor's energy is contagious. His words are encouraging. He's wise and he is so much fun. Believe it or not, we both wore animal onesies when we recorded this interview, and I even have photographic evidence to prove this. So just shoot me an email if you want to see it. Taylor was an elephant. I was a monkey. It was it was so much fun. <laughs> and honestly, guys, it has to be fun. This journey has to be fun. It has to be light. Things can get really tough, and things are still tough for many of us during this pandemic. So adding that sprinkle of joy is a choice that I think is up to us. You have everything you need inside of you to smile and to make someone else smile as well. Also, I have an announcement. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you often hear us speak about our service project where we donate 15% of monthly membership fees from Cafe RE. Well, I wanted to let you know that we have made our first donation for this year. We chose an organization called No Kid Hungry, And this organization is focusing on feeding children that are missing out on school meals. As you all know, with coronavirus, most states are not going back to school in the fall. And for some kids, the only meal that they receive in a day is sometimes that meal that they receive at school. So this organization is really helping those kids get fed. Thank you, Cafe Ari members, for being part of this donation. And thank you, Monica and Lauren, for helping me find this organization. I appreciate you guys. We donated $2,000 to No Kid Hungry, and we plan on choosing two more organizations before this year ends, also providing $2,000 donation amounts to each of them. So thank you, everybody. Alrighty, let's work on finding your better you. Hang on, hang on, my phone's ringing, and it's Ty. Hold on, hold on. Hola? Ty? Ty, I'm in the middle of recording. What's up? What? No. It's not today. I checked my calendar and everything. Okay, okay. I'll bring something up on this episode. Okay, Ty, I gotta go. Bye. So, apparently I dropped the ball and forgot that today is Paul's six-year sober birthday. Lo siento, Paul. I'm sorry. I mean, I think I remember you telling me that you didn't want to make a big deal out of this year. But maybe in your honor... I'll go ahead and share a few things that I know you've learned while you've been on this journey. Wait, this is silly. Paul, can you get over here? Please tell us all about it. Please tell us everything you've learned in the last six years. Okay, maybe not everything, but just just give us the, uh, what was that called that I used in high school to cheat when I didn't want to read the books? Uh, Oh, give us the cliff notes. Give us the cliff notes. 
Hey, what's up, Odette? It's great to be here with you. And let me say, I've missed all of you guys, the listeners. It's so good to be here. So as you can imagine, handing off my baby, the podcast to Odette was challenging on many fronts and mostly personal things that I had to push through. And you guys have helped so much during this transition. You've heard me say on this podcast many times that you guys are all part of this journey, all part of this project, Recovery Elevator, part of the podcast. And your feedback, encouragement, and support helped us both so much during this intense period of change. So on behalf of myself and Odette, we just want to say thank you. And to you, Odette, I'm going to give you the official thumbs up emoji. Nice job. You are doing fantastic. And listeners, check out this gift that Odette has given to me. On Mondays, I go into Spotify and I type in Recovery Elevator Podcast. And this isn't to give Odette feedback or to critique, but I'm listening to the podcast because I'm on this journey as well. And Odette has dropped so many value bombs. She's doing such a good job. So thank you so much, Odette. Okay, um, let's, let's get started. Ah, that felt good to say. All right, what are the cliff notes from what I've learned in the last six years, Odette? That's a big ask, <laughs> and I'm taking it easy on this milestone. So let's go with the six big insights since the handoff on June 8th. Yeah, let's go with that. All right, number one. So people are struggling right now. Alcohol sales across the globe and nationwide are up 150%, and addictions are taking hold. But let's not label this as a problem. So under constraint, we innovate. And we are being forced right now in unprecedented times to go within and start addressing these things that are holding us back. So we are in tremendous times for spiritual and personal growth. And like Shakespeare says, nothing is either good or bad. Only thinking makes it so. So I encourage you guys, before you start labeling things as, oh shit, this is bad, keep in mind that my addiction was the best thing that happened to me and it got me to where I am today. All right, one more thing under this first insight is, if you're hoping the old world returns, in my opinion, start embracing the new world because so much of the old world is gone for good and we don't want parts of it to ever come back. And if we recognize our powerful roles as creators in the earth school, as in shifting from COVID is happening to me, as in it's happening for me, we all collectively created this global interruption. We reached a breaking point. There was too much stress, anxiety, depression, addiction, too much pulling our energies. There's too much on our plate. We had enough. So we've got a major metaphorical river crossing as a human race right now that we all must attempt to cross. And if you're listening to this podcast, you're working on quitting drinking, aka going internal. This means you've already begun this river crossing. And for some, as the Buddha says, you've reached the other side. My second insight that I've had during the handoff is to turn off the news. So I rarely watch the news, but I took it to a different level this past month was there was still an app on my phone or like when I swiped left on my iPhone, there was four headlines, there was four titles. And these headlines are catchy. They're supposed to get your attention and they're all negative. Go figure. It's not breaking news to let you guys know that the news is selling negative emotion. So what I did was I disabled this widget and I completely disconnected from the news and it, and it had a profound positive effect on my life. Look, and if there's something that I need to know, um, I'll find out about it, right? You get Amber alerts on your phone. A friend will say, hey, like shit's going down here. I'll know about it, right? 
But taking that extra step, I actually had no idea. You know, I was a guy that's like, I don't watch the news, but I was checking these headlines like four to five times a day. So it was another buffer that I implemented to disassociate with the negative emotions that the news in cable programs are selling. And real quick, you can't get mad at them. It's what we're watching. So the way we change that is we start to tune in to more healthier and positive stories. Okay, the third insight that I've realized since the handoff is that the ego always sets its own trap. Now, this is one of Eckhart Tolle's, I would say, more, somewhat more advanced teachings in his books, and he talks about this in A New Earth. And this is where, okay, so in the Soviet Union, in the Cold War, we thought we had a really big problem in our hands. But in the Soviet Union, the egoic structures were so tight and so entrenched that it actually ended up collapsing from within. There was no external pressure needed. It just collapsed, right? So you can almost see this, this teaching in real life form taking place. And the example I'm going to give you guys is the mask debate. Should you wear a mask or should you not wear a mask? I'm just going to say my personal opinion. Yes, let's let's put some masks on right now. But there are people on either side of this debate that says you should wear a mask. No, you shouldn't wear a mask. And there's equal amount of hate on each side. And, and Mother Teresa said, I'll never attend a fight against terrorism rally or, or an end world hunger march because both sides actually have the same amount of unbalanced energy. And I don't even want to say like hate. They're, they're, they're both sides need to balance the energy on that. And you can see that with the mask debate. So the governments across the globe have almost found themselves in, 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 in an undefendable position. This is open up the economy and risk human life or close the economy and save lives. And I think we found out, unfortunately, globally, we value money more than the value of a human life. Okay. My fourth insight I've had is I'm fairly certain pets are the reason why human beings, our race, hasn't fully imploded yet. Seriously, I think pets, their energies, and just being around a dog, a cat, a lizard, or a snake, whatever, is what's keeping us as a species sane. And I've done some sitting on this topic, and I've separated more from looking at pets as dogs and humans as humans. They're all just different representations of energy and different ways to process data, right? It's just a different species, a different representation of energy. And we often think um, that we are infinitely more intelligent than pets, but we need to recognize that our thinking mind has created several pickles for the human race. Um, and maybe our intelligence, the brain intelligence, uh, is something we might, need, we might want to step away from, and we want to use it strategically, but it's something that I feel, again, this river crossing is that we're stepping away from the thinking mind and pets have an incredible intelligence. And let me tell you a story about Ben, my dog. It's a standard poodle. Poodles are extremely smart. Um, not quite as smart as a border collie. Apparently that's the smartest breed. And I dated a gal that had a border collie one time and I believe that a hundred percent. Okay. So um, at my office, I would go out for lunch and then, or go out for errands when I was in Bozeman, Montana. And then um, Ben would go to the door every time when I was about three miles away and he wouldn't hear my truck and he wouldn't hear, you know, the familiar sound of me coming up, shutting the door and coming to the door. Ben knew that I was heading back and I was within two miles, within three miles of the door. And my office manager, Carrie, would film this and I would see it. And it was so crazy. Ben is connected to me in another way. There's another intelligence that Ben is using to know that I'm coming home. So these pets, I think, are playing a larger role 
in keeping us balanced than we know. So whether it's, you know, if you can't get a cat or a dog, maybe look into getting like a hamster or a gerbil or some fish or, or go volunteer somewhere and walk some dogs because these pets, they're powerful. Um, they, they, they're doing a lot of healing for us behind the scenes. Okay, the fifth insight is I've had so much more empathy for those who have had COVID or are going through the pandemic, regardless of what you're facing. So I was 100% certain that I got COVID. Yeah, I had something for two weeks and I was out. Um, even for a moment there, I was struggling to breathe and I couldn't get warm. I had a fever and I was in my basement and I had these sheepskins on me. I'm wearing sweatpants and a sweatshirt and I was struggling to breathe and I was focusing on my breath in and out and just being calm. In fact, I told my dad, I said, Hey dad, keep your phone next to you tonight. Cause I might need some medical attention. I got past that rough night, but I had something again for like, like 10 to 12 days. Uh, I got tested. It came back negative, but 12% of negatives actually end up to be positive. So regardless, we still had to go through the quarantine protocol and I was in my parents' basement, which is finished, but I wasn't able to see my dogs, right? Or uh, my, or Ben, especially Ben and my parents have two dogs as well. So I was hearing Ben run around the wood floor upstairs. Um, and they have a backyard. I couldn't let him see me or else he'd run through the electric fence. And this went on for 10 days. I didn't feel well. I was lonely. It was, it was uncomfortable, but it gave me so much more empathy for those who are going through COVID or this pandemic who don't quite have the resources I have. Right. Um, I would open the door and I would see beautiful pine trees. I'm, I'm up here in Edwards, Colorado, which is outside of Vail, Colorado. Um, you know, even though I was quarantined, my experience was more pleasant than others. And I was able to sit with that and be in the pain that others are feeling right now. There are so many across the globe in our nation, in our counties, in our countries or wherever that are going through intense moments of pain. But as I said earlier, let's not label this as a problem. This is what we need under constraint. We innovate and this is how we improve. The last thing that I've realized is it's never too late to accomplish a goal. So when I was 10 years old, my parents rented out a whole skateboard park for my 10th birthday. It was my best birthday by far. And I was always intimidated of the older skateboarders. So when I would go to the skate park, um, I would never really try to, to drop in on the big ramps. And when I say drop in, that means like you walk your skateboard up to the edge of it slam the front down and you roll into a half pipe. That's what I mean when I say drop in. So on my birthday at age 10, I learned on the three foot ramp, the four foot ramp half pipe, then to the six foot half pipe. And then I did the eight foot half pipe. Now it was like 1145 PM at night. And I'm age 10 on April 10th, 1992. We can, yeah, that was easy math right there. And I remember looking at the 12 foot vert ramp. And that means there's a foot and a half of vertical on the top of this ramp. So if you do it, you're free falling for a foot and a half before your wheels even touch the ramp. I was too chicken shit to do that because I was 10 years old. And when you're 10 years old, you're like four foot eight and that ramp looked like 150 feet tall. Okay. So during COVID, I took out my skateboard from middle school. I used to love to skateboard in middle school. Then I moved to Colorado. It was freezing and there just were no ramps. There was no skate park, but always in the back of my mind, I had this goal to drop in on a vert ramp. And at the skate park in Edwards, Colorado, which wasn't built at the time, there is a 15 foot pool. Yeah. A 15 foot concrete pool. And I'd always look at it and be like, oh, F no, no fucking way. 
But as I'm skateboarding, I keep looking at this pool, right? And I start getting the pads because I took some really bad falls and I got the helmet, wrist guards, elbow pads, and knee pads. And I started to get better at skateboarding. And then one morning, I'm only wearing my wrist guard, right? I actually thought I broke my wrist. I went to urgent care, got uh, x-rays and negative. Okay. So one morning, I just knew. I was like, oh shit, Like now's the time to do this. And I walked over to it put my board on the pool curb with no pads now. And this isn't like a wood ramp or if you fall and slide, like it's going to hurt, but you're sliding. This is on concrete. And I did it. I freaking dropped into a 15 foot pool. And then after that, I got a random stranger to film me doing it. Um, so I did it two times in a row. And the third time I actually totally ate shit. And I was like at the bottom of the pool for a good 10 minutes, holding my wrist and just like collecting myself, making sure there wasn't some serious damage. But later that night, I went home and sat with this and I said, oh my God, I, I had no idea how big of a goal that was for me and that it stuck with me since age 10. And I had just this intense feeling of, of pride and, and elation to have accomplished something like that. In fact, there's, I, I have a personal Instagram account. It's called pablo.church1 and there's a video of it on there if you guys want to check it out. Okay, I got one more. Seventh insight is my parents are rad. Seriously, I've heard a lot of people say when their parents pass away that, you know, I just wish I had another week with them or two weeks with them. I've had an extra six months with them. And there was a lot of healing that needed to happen with the dynamic, especially with the relationship with my mother and I, and same as my father and I, there has been so much healing that has taken place these last five months. And what's neat is we've detached from the roles as like, they're the parent and I'm the kid. I'm living with my parents, but I don't even want to use the word parents. I don't call them mom and dad anymore. I call them by their names. It's been really fun. And my parents are so cool. So Molly and Perry Churchill, thank you so much for just being kick-ass, fun, good human beings. I've enjoyed, okay, I was going to say I've enjoyed every minute with you guys. That, that would be a straight up lie. But thank you so much for, for letting me stay here. And guys, how I got here, I rented out my house for a whole year. Yeah, I was going to go podcast on the road, went to Australia, New Zealand, Thailand, Cambodia, Mexico. And then in March, I was in Mexico and said, oh crap, I have to go home. And internally I said, this is the worst thing that can happen to me again, right? But maybe there's part of me that recognized there was so much healing and transformation that needed to happen within our family dynamics that that's where I went. And it's been such a blessing. So Adet, thank you so much for, for keeping this movement going, keeping this project going. I love it. And thanks for looping me in on my six-year alcohol-free date. Yeah. And it is a big deal, but at the same time, it's, it's another day. And uh, I cannot wait for what this journey has in store for myself, for you, Odette, and for the listeners. So, all right. I'll see you guys when I see you. It's great to be here with everybody. Again, I have missed you all so much. Odette, keep doing what you're doing. Your first couple episodes are way better than my first couple episodes. Thank you so much. And since I've had the pleasure of meeting this interviewee in person, he's a total rock star, I am going to introduce him. Taylor, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm doing really good. Uh, happy to be here. I'm so happy you said yes. I am not going to tell you who, but multiple people voted you on to the show. So just saying. Oh, wow. That is, uh, <laughs> wow. That's humbling. Thanks for being here. Can you give listeners a little background and start by letting us know when you had your last drink? Yeah. 
So my last drink was on uh, June 7th, 2019. So that was a little over 13 months ago. And I actually was at the airport picking up my dad. Um, so I was at the airport bar uh, picking up my dad to help take me to my first uh, AA meeting and get me started on my journey. Oh, I can't wait to hear more. Give us a little background on <laughs> where you're from. Do you have a family? What are your hobbies? What do you do for a living? And for our Golden Rule 22, what do you like to do for fun? Oh, of course. So I'm originally from Sacramento, California. I've lived a lot of places. I've uh, been given a lot of really fun opportunities. So uh, I, I've split my time between Sacramento and St. Louis, Missouri, mostly. But I lived in Hawaii for a short period of time. I'm, my mom grew up in uh, Papua New Guinea. And so I actually got to go there and see that side of life, which is it's it's a rare thing to have that perspective on on life. So I, I'm really thankful in my later years to be given that opportunity and hobbies. Yeah, I I have a lot of hobbies. I do all, all of the INGs that Colorado has to offer. That's where I live now, by the way, uh, in Thornton, Colorado, a little bit above Denver with my with my two fur babies, my two pit bulls, uh, Harley and Rooster. And I, you know, love taking them on walks. I love to uh, record and write music. I'm a really avid rock climber. That's something that I really um, enjoyed doing as a kid and then uh, got away from it and then picked it up again in sobriety. And then, you know, just everything else, uh, hiking, uh, mountain biking, skiing, snowboarding, wakeboarding, video editing, uh, amateur photography, really kind of somebody said, Hey, do you want to get into Dungeons and Dragons? So I started doing that. Like I just, you know, anything that like gets put in front of me, I really kind of just say yes to it and then, you know, run it down. I don't know. I just, I, I find it, uh, entertaining to just go with all the hobbies. Cause I didn't do those things when I was drinking. I love that you're saying that you just say yes, because I know that I met you recently through Cafe RE and I could yeah. I could get that sense immediately that you were just someone who says yes and kind of figures out the logistics later. And that's that's really cool because I feel like you expose yourself to different things and and you may like them or you may not like them, but you're just going for it, which I think is a really cool mindset and way of living. And listeners, I do have to say that Tyler, Taylor, sorry, my my Spanish, it makes it so hard between Tyler and Taylor. And I know it's Taylor, but I'm reading as if I'm reading in Spanish, guys. And I'm I'm sorry, Taylor. Oh, oh, Dad, I've I've been called worse. I promise. I've been called worse. Oh, my goodness. But anyway, in light of keeping it fun and golden rule number 22, which is for us here in RE to always have fun, I did want to mention that about 15 to 20 minutes before our interview, Taylor sent me a photo of an elephant onesie that he was wearing. And I decided to put on my monkey onesie and send him a photo back. And we actually shared it in our groups. And I loved it because we were just having fun before we even hit record. And you did have a line for the outfit. Can you share with us the line that you said you were going to share about your onesie? Uh, yeah, well, you know, I, I thought we, I was coming on here to talk about the elephant in the room. <laughs> So, yeah, I'm not even a dad, so I don't even know if I qualify for being able to tell dad jokes, but uh, whatever. I think it's funny. 
so funny and we just have to keep it light these are serious conversations and of course we want to validate everyone's journey and everyone's emotions but it definitely changes your perspective and just makes it a little bit lighter when you choose to incorporate fun so thanks for doing that with me today Oh my goodness. And I, when you sent me the the picture back of you wearing yours, I was just like, ah, yes, this is awesome. <laughs> uh, thank you, Taylor. Well, let's get back to your story. Give listeners a little background on your history with drinking. When did you start drinking? When did you realize alcohol was a problem for you and had thoughts of removing it? Tell me your story. Of course. Um, yeah, thank you. So I... I started I I started exploring it when I was uh, about 14 years old. That seems to be like a an age that I keep hearing over and over and over again. And you know, for me it was more or less just trying to see what the buzz was all about. Uh you know, like so I I went downstairs and and got a couple beers out of the fridge and I thought I got drunk, but I wasn't really sure and you know, then I didn't really touch it too much after that until I got into high school around uh you know, uh 16 15 16 years old. And even during those times, it was there, but my go-to was was weed. And you know, I, I'm I'm 30 years old, and so I, I, it feels weird for me to say back then. But back then, it was still very illegal to smoke weed, and it wasn't as socially acceptable. And there were no states that were legal yet. And you know, um, that was kind of my go-to thing was was smoking weed. I liked it better. I preferred it. And you know, for me. Alcohol was at the parties, and it did that social lubricant uh, that I've heard many a times on the podcast of just allowing me to loosen up and feel more a part of the conversation. I didn't need it to that degree, though. I'm an, I'm a very animated extrovert, naturally, so I didn't really need any extra personality added on there, but you know, it allowed me to, you know, fit in more or less. And, you know, high school, it was fine. It wasn't that big of a deal to me. When things really started to turn and, you know, you only get this uh, in hindsight was uh, my parents had to make a really hard decision because they caught me smoking weed uh, when I was in my first year of college, still living at home in Sacramento. And, you know, uh, my my little sister, bless her heart, uh, she came upstairs and she smelled marijuana and, uh, you know, didn't know what it was, got scared, went downstairs and, you know, uh, told my stepmom. And then they had to have a really serious conversation. And at the time, my mom lived in um, uh, Columbia, Illinois. And uh, my dad had to say to me, you know, you're going to see your mom. We want you to stay there. And that that was hard. Um, I didn't I, I, I cried that day. And when I moved, I then started a victim's story of, you know, being not allowed to smoke weed anymore. And I was forced to go and drink because I could no longer smoke weed and society's messed up because it's illegal and it shouldn't be a schedule one drug. And just, uh, just all of these, all of these thoughts of just these, you know, uh, negativity and not thinking at all about what I just put my parents through and the decision they had to make. And not thinking about the opportunities that this could afford me. Now, luckily enough, what happened is I'm still a very, you know, I, I was still very high functioning, more or less. And so I took that anger 
and I put it to use by um, I, I didn't continue smoking weed. I actually listened, you know, even though I was mad about it, I I switched over to drinking and, you know, I actually started focusing on my career and then drinking wasn't necessarily an issue at that time, but it definitely started to grow from that. So the moving piece was as a punishment for, as, was it a punishment? I just want to make sure I, get, I got that right. The move to see your mom was like almost as a, as a way to disrupt the weed pattern? Yes, I would say so. But, you know, I then just latched on to to drinking and focusing on my career. And 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 what I want to say is, you know, for the next couple of years after that, I I started to see a lot of success by quitting doing drugs and allowing myself to grow in my career. Um, I got a government job. Actually, what, you know, I thought was a really negative thing ended up being a really positive thing um, because it lit a fire underneath me to, you know, to start being a contributor, to start being an adult. And, you know, as I grew from, you know, working in the warehouse, uh, working in, as a janitor, working for the government into the warehouse into uh, the mailroom, into the security office, becoming a, a federal police officer and then getting deployed to Afghanistan. Like that's where that's where it took me. You know, that decision is that it, it took me to all of those places and all those opportunities. But during that whole time, you know, I still had this internal dialogue of being more or less, you know, forced into drinking because I couldn't do what I really wanted to do. And that dialogue I didn't know existed until after I got sober. So, you know, I had to really start looking at things when I turned 26 years old. Uh, that's when things I would say started to become less controllable. And what I mean by that is I was starting to moderate. Uh, you know, up until then, I didn't have a problem with work. I didn't have a problem with you know, uh, with going out on weekends or, you know, creating conflict with friends. I was always more or less a happy-go-lucky drunk. But at, at 26, I found myself starting to moderate by telling myself, hey, well, you're going to go a month without alcohol. And, you know, I, I realized it later that it, in order to be successful in my sobriety, I have a three-legged table and my, my legs are mind, body, and soul. Well, if I only took care of my body, which is what I kept trying to do to moderate, I was only taking care of one of the legs and the other two were crumbling underneath me. And I didn't realize that that's why I wasn't successful because I'd go 30 days and I'd be like, okay, I don't have a problem. We're good here. And then I started to realize right before I deployed to Afghanistan, I said, hey, you know what? You're, gonna, you're not going to be able to drink alcohol when you're overseas and you might as well stop a couple days before you deploy just to get a head start. Mm -hmm. I got sick. And I was shaking and I was in bed and I, I just was like, oh, this is, this is because I'm going overseas. I'm going to a war zone. No, I, I, in hindsight, that's not what was happening. I was going through withdrawals and, you know, I think the one person that knew it the most was my mom. Cause she came over to my house and she took care of me and she didn't say it at the time, but she told me later that she knew what I was going through. And that she actually thought that me going to Afghanistan might be what I need to get me on this journey. And so I went overseas. And for the four, four and a half months that I was over there, I got the best sleep of my life. 
that's a weird thing to say. And it's because I didn't drink while I was there. And I had a job to do. I had something to focus on to distract me 24-7. And the whole time I was there, I got to see a part of me that I didn't even know existed anymore. I got to see that six-year-old authentic self again. And even though I was doing something very serious and I was surrounded by very amazing, capable individuals, I was going... Uh, I was beginning a journey of my own that I didn't know would ever happen to me. And so getting to when I got home, I got on an airplane and I was on my way back. And the first thing I did was order a Jack and Coke on the airplane. And it was because that was another I've got this. I did four, four and a half months in Afghanistan. I deserve this. I can drink. I'm fine now. And I got home and uh, my mom hugs me and gets shocked that I surprised her and all that stuff. And and uh, she she says to me the next day, you know, you you smelled like alcohol. And I didn't know what I was doing to her or to anybody else. I was like, yeah, I smelled like alcohol. I deserved this. I deserved to be able to drink on my on my flight home. And I, I love her so much. She you know, she she was OK with it. I was deployed in 2017 and I got home in December and I started dating. I I started talking to a girl when I was overseas that I had met like a couple days before deploying. And when I got home, we started dating and we dated for a year and a half. And she actually ended up moving out to Colorado with me, which that's another part of my story I'll get to in a second. And, you know, uh, I needed to continue on for another year and a half before I really met my 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 rock bottom moment. So during my relationship, I slowly started to lose lose control. I was back to moderation. I was I was up to like a six pack of Lagunitas IPA and a pint of Fireball almost every single day as my moderation. And you know, I still had rules in place. I would still tell myself, you know, like go to bed by 8 p.m. so then you could go to work the next day. You know, and I like to consider myself like a high functioning alcoholic, even at those times. By that time, I had already almost I didn't like the word alcoholic, but I pretty much accepted what I was and that I was just going to continue on this path because whatever, I can't do anything to change it. I was I, I didn't know how to stop. I wanted to stop, but I was also too scared to get sober. Tell me about going back to drinking after you got back from Afghanistan and having have had those aha moments and like very childlike feelings and connected to yourself and obviously great sleep like you mentioned when you came back and started drinking I so appreciate that your mom I'm a mom myself so I can imagine how hard that was for her I so appreciate that she just let you continue your own path and trusted that it would unfold the way that it had to. But internally for you, how did it feel when you picked up drinking again, knowing that you had already experienced like the other side of it? Was it how, how like tolling on your emotions was that? So, yeah, (laughs) there's, there's something that's said in the rooms of AA that is really funny to me that sticks out for this, uh, which is uh, once you've seen a sober life and once you've know that uh, you more or less have a problem, you can't really go back. Things, you know, it doesn't taste the same. It's bitter. You you know the end is nigh. I I knew I was doomed. <laughs> you know that you are doing it to cope and you it's not fun anymore like Paul says. It's ruined. Yeah. <laughs> 
oh, it's ruined completely. And bless bless the heart of 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 the uh, of the individual I was dating at the time. You know, she had to see all of that to see the slow demise of 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 my own self. I I destroyed my my personality and who I was, who I thought I was to myself. I no longer was that person. I was just this zombie going through this ritual, having the same negative conversation and shame talks every single day with myself mm-hmm. for a year and a half until, you know, when I'm sitting there just trying to grasp reality and trying to find things to latch on on to to tell myself that well if we just have this things will get better you know anything except dealing with the issue anything except dealing with the problem which was alcohol i started latching on to well this is the this is the woman i'm going to marry and what a poetic thing it was for me to get deployed and for us to talk the whole time when i was deployed overseas and and i have a i have a ring for her and i'm going to propose to her and all this time i'm i'm tripping about the future and i'm worrying about our marriage and all this stuff and i'm not fixing the problem i'm not focusing internally i am just trying to create outside solutions to an internal problem and that just did not work and she finally had enough and while i was romant- r- romanticizing our our wedding day she was leaving me she was she was done and you know she told me to get help she told me to seek out employee assistance program she works in the mental health field she's a she's a therapist <laughs> and you know, I, I just, I kept telling her, yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it. And then instead I would just drink out of the closet. You know, I was like, okay, well, I can't do this in public anymore. So I'm just going to put all my booze in my closet and, uh, I'm just going to tell her I'm getting better. Cause it's so much easier to lie about it than actually get help, you know? And by the way, that's the path of the hardest resistance. The path of least resistance is to just get help. <laughs> yes. Um, we would- <laughs> We, uh, we, uh, we think we're so smart when we're drinking. <laughs> oh, oh, alcoholics are, in my opinion, are the most resilient people out there. They're the most creative and, and they're usually the most intelligent people. And I just was so afraid of becoming sober. That was my biggest fear. I couldn't continue, but I didn't know how to stop. And it really took my rock bottom moment, which was she left. I was home alone. I have my two dogs. I was, I couldn't sleep on my back anymore. I was bleeding when I was going to the bathroom. Uh, my liver enzymes were elevated and I dropped to my knees and I prayed to a God that I no longer believed in at the time. And I just said, I give up. I can't do this anymore. I, I just, I can't. And for some reason, I don't know why it never happened, but my dad's been in the program of AA at the time for 27 years. He now has 28 years. And his name popped into my head. And I was like, call your damn father. (laughs) Like, so simple. And I did. And I cried. And I was free. And I said, get on a plane. I need you. And that was the hardest thing for me to do was to just ask for help. And he did. It took a week for him to come out for logistical things and this, that, and whatever. But that whole week, I was lighter. I still drank that whole week, but I drank less, actually. And I think it's because – and I I actually saw somebody talking about this in in one of our groups earlier today – is I was in recovery 
before sobriety mm-hmm. at that moment. Yeah, I started it's... going through recovery before I was in sobriety. Your awareness had already kicked in in that inner voice and you knew what you had to do. Yes, exactly. I knew exactly. And, and you know, he, he flew out and I sat at that bar waiting for him to get there. And I look over and there's this guy being cut off. And his argument with the bartender was he was trying to get his money back because since he was being cut off, he should have been refunded all of his money from his drinking. Logic. And I'm watching this and the universe has a way of speaking to you if you so choose to listen to it. And I chose to tap in and actually listen for once in my life and look at that as a fat warning of, dude, this is you. Like, this is you keep going. And this is you. And I didn't know that that was going to be my last drink. I I picked up my dad and he took me to Denver Young People Groups of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I sat there in that meeting going, well, my fireball's in my closet. My dad's only here for four days. I just have to put on a face. He's going to go back home. I'm going to pretend to do this thing. I've got this. And for some reason, something somebody said in that meeting, I didn't drink that night. And then we went to another meeting the next day and the next day. And I turned and uh, somebody who's actually in blue, who's a, who, who my dad knows very well, messaged him and said, hey, your son might want to listen to uh, Recovery Elevator. And so I turned it on on that Saturday on the 8th of June and started listening to Recovery Elevator right at the same time I was starting to get sober. And between those two initial tools, I started on the journey that I'm on today, 13 months later. And holy cow, I'm so blessed and happy to be here. Ah, Taylor, so much knowledge. Thank you so much for sharing. I want to just pause you for a second because something that you said a couple of minutes ago is so valuable. You said you were looking for outside solutions to fix an inside problem. And that is very important because the answer is inside of us and everything that we need is already inside of us. And our brain is really strong and resistant. I agree with you alcoholics, people who struggle with addiction, whatever you want to call us crazies. We are resilient and stubborn human beings. And you knew what you had to do, but it was it was already inside of you. And I'm just really happy that you gave yourself the opportunity, even though you were already having sabotaging thoughts from the beginning. And that's only natural because our brains think that they're actually saving us at the beginning by going back to our plans and going back to this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to my dad's going to leave and then I'm just going to go back to do Mm -hmm. what I knew what I knew how to do best. And I feel like you really fought back. And what happened when your dad left? Like walk me through those first 30 days, because once he left, that layer of accountability did leave you and you did have the podcast and meetings and that was built in, but you lived alone at the time, right? I did. And oh my goodness, what a, oh, I'm trying to kind of put myself in that headspace right now. Yeah, I, I did. And I fully dove in and there's a phrase I like to use today that kind of describes Uh, my sobriety back then and now, which is I sober like I drank. Um, In order for me to be successful in this, I had to take on sobriety as rigorously as I drank alcohol. 
And really, uh, a part of my story um, that kept me, that even got me started to even call my dad was I was in therapy with the employee assistance program through work. And, you know, she was helping me as well and guiding me on what was the next thing for me to do and to focus on. And so when my dad left and I was left to my own devices, I uh, continued going to therapy uh, two times a week. And I also just really took my sobriety by the reins. I had the gift of a pink cloud for my first three months. Um, I know that's not the case for some people, but for me, I just, the energies around my desire for sobriety were way stronger than my addiction to keep going at that time. And that first 30 days, I experienced a lot of humility. I got a sponsor and started working on my uh, on my steps. And I had a lot of things happen in my first 30 days that uh, put me to the test on whether or not I was going to be serious about this. Because there's always great excuses out there that I tell myself as a good reason to drink, right? Like, it's It's Manic Monday. Let's drink. It's Twisted Tuesday. Let's drink. Like, and you know, uh, there were a couple things in my first 30 days that I could have used. I had turned 29 on July 3rd, and I could have drank on that day, but I didn't. And then I had the 4th of July, and I could have drank on that day, and I didn't. And there was another thing that I found out about on my 30th day of sobriety. A good friend of mine, uh, a coworker, took his own life. He shot himself in the head at 21 years old. And from what I was told, alcohol was involved. I'm not here to necessarily um, talk about that too much, but more or less, how do you respond to that uh, when all of those emotions hit you and you're in early sobriety? And I, I guess my answer to myself for that time was, I could really identify with him and his struggles. I wish I could fix them and take them away from him. But now I have to continue on my life and on my path and on my journey. And I can't honor him and I can't be there and be present in my life if I go back to a bottle. I can't do anyone any justice to include him if I go back to drinking over this. And that's when I really realized there will always be an excuse to drink. There will always be a reason out there to go back. And I can either choose to go back or I can choose to live a better life and be the best version of myself and be there for somebody else. Because, you know, it might start as a very selfish program, whatever program you work. But in the end, it's all about giving back. And it's all about seeing a smile on somebody else's face. And that's what I get to do now. I get to just go out there and you know, be the light to somebody's darkness. And that's what I want to do. And that's what keeps me sober today is working with other people and, you know, letting them know that I hear you. I've been there and I'm, and I want to help. Yes. What a way to honor him. And also what a huge boost in your journey. The fact that you went through big hurdles on your first 30 days and that you You made it. You know, we think that emotions are going to last forever. We think that we have so much pain inside of us and so much shame. But you looks like you gained a lot of confidence in yourself during those 30 days. So thank you for sharing. And 
I know you spoke on your birthday and recently you talked about in one of our groups, listeners, Taylor's in one of our Cafe RE groups and he shared a little bit about how different his 29th birthday was from his 30th. Can you share with listeners a little bit about that? Of course, yes. So on my 29th birthday, I sat at home. I'm in my first 30 days of sobriety and I thought about it and I didn't have anything to do and even more so anyone to contact. I had gone so far down my rabbit hole of drinking that I didn't have anybody to reach out to to come hang out with me on my birthday. And there was a guy that I met in uh, in AA two weeks before. And luckily enough, in his program, he was told by his sponsor to just say yes to everything. So I called him and I said, hey, do you want to hang out on my birthday? And he said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so he came over and we watched TV. And that was my birthday. And, you know, fast forward to this last Friday, I had 20 people show up to my birthday. And from different walks of life, rock climbers, people in sobriety, family, friends, just different, beautiful, individual human beings who have met and learned about the authentic Taylor and appreciates me as I am through and through. And I looked around my party and we were playing cornhole and we had a uh, can jam going on. And, you know, we had my blow up hot tub, which I call my Hoosier hottie. And <laughs> and we just were having fun, you know, and it was just that if I had a sobriety meter, <laughs> that right there is action. That is that is results. And I couldn't help but just be humbled in that moment of the work. You know, it's okay to have pride in your accomplishments. And it's okay to look back on things that you're proud of. Um, you know, there is a breaking point where it goes too far. But in that moment, I just was in pure joy. And I don't think it's just results now that you're sharing. I think it, that having that metric and, and seeing yourself now and seeing yourself a year a year ago in hindsight it also shows patience trust it shows that you don't get immediate results you know it shows that things take time mm -hmm. it shows that it had to be like there's no overnight success it took time and i am i was so happy to hear that story when you shared that's why i really wanted you to bring it to the to the podcast because you have to trust and you just have to focus on one baby step at a time. And the next thing you know, you're going to look around and you have a completely different environment from what you had. And maybe that doesn't mean that your life completely changes and that you move. It, it doesn't even have to be tangible. I think it's also emotional how different you felt on that day. Yes. Yeah. I, you know, I, I'm just I'm I, I was really I was really blessed that day and it's a memory that I get to carry with me now because it's not tainted with uh with alcohol and I get to remember the full day and um the laughs that we had and the the moments that we shared. Do you still get cravings 13 months in? Walk me through that if that does happen to you still. Ah, uh, yes. Um, so my alter ego is named Gregory. 
A little, the story behind that is uh, we, my roommate and I, when we were 20 years old, we had this like bug attached to the ceiling in a really weird position. And I don't know why, but we decided to name it and he named it Gregory because we didn't understand how the bug got there. That's such a really weird story, I know. (laughs) But I later called my addiction Gregory just to further ferment why he named it Gregory, which was he didn't understand what had happened or how it got there, but it's now called Gregory. So I don't understand my addiction or how it got there, but it's now called Gregory. I love that story. It makes total (laughs) sense. How did this thing get in here? Like when did this, when did this thought process get inserted in my brain and how do I get rid of it? (laughs) Right. So you know what? I have a healthy relationship with Gregory now um, because He's not my enemy anymore. He still wants to try to convince me to drink. And I, yeah, they're fleeting thoughts. You know, just like I've heard on this podcast a few times of, you know, uh, you, I go out and I mow the lawn and a cold beer sounds really good afterwards. And, you know, I I uh, I go to an airport. Holy cow. Oh, my goodness. When the first time I walked through an airport, holy crap. You know, and even now, I every once in a while, you'll get on an airplane and they'll ask you what you want to drink. And I have to like stop myself from saying, uh, you know, Jack and Coke. And it's just that it's a conversation that I get to have with Gregory now that it's I, I don't shy him away. I don't push him away. I let him be there. And I have him exist because then I can differentiate what is Taylor thinking and what is Gregory thinking. And once I know that Gregory's talking, instead of shutting him up or getting pissed off at him or yelling at him or getting frustrated or irritated that the thought exists, I can just simply go, hey, what's up, Gregory? No, no, we're not doing that today. Like, treat him like a sick child, you know, like treat him with care and compassion and just let him know that I hear you. I understand Um, But we've been down that road, man. Like, remember that night? It was a lot of fun. Um, Riding the bull for the first time, that was great, right? But what about the rest of the night where you got a black eye and you lost your shoes and you lost your wallet, right? You forget about that stuff, right? That's what he's trying to tell me to do, but I have to remind him about the rest of the night. And, you know, I still get cravings. Every once in a while I do, but you know what? They're fleeting thoughts. And that's from working a good program. That's from working through my 12 steps. That's from being vulnerable and opening up to people. And for me, I'm an extrovert, so that's a little bit easier. So I know for the introverts that that can be a very difficult thing. But also being aware of your friends who are introverts and being aware of your friends that are extroverts and just identifying when it might be a struggle for them and might be a little bit easier for you can make the conversation easier for yourself if you just identify like, hey, this is a struggle for me because I'm an introvert. Therefore, I need to try a little bit harder here. Or, you know, for me being extroverted, hey, you might want to just stop talking for a minute and let an introvert talk for a little while. And listeners, I do want to say that this tool about naming whatever you want to call it, naming your addiction, naming your ego, naming your inner bully. This is such a great tool. It is a fantastic tool. When I went into treatment, this was one of the tools that saved me because I don't know about you all, but I thought that everything that I thought was me. So not only that I thought that I had to listen to it, I also thought that I was bad because we have some scary or bad thoughts sometimes and we are not our thoughts and this really helps you separate yourself from that and and see just like you're sharing that hey 
for me, it's Odelia. Like, oh, there she is. And Liz Gilbert, an author, says something that I really love and helps me create like a visual. She says, that person can't be driving. So that person isn't going to go away. You can't throw that person out the window. But you can say, hey, Gregory, you're not fucking driving today. Like you are on the co-pilot seat and here's a lollipop so you can suck on it. And I'm going to drive. I'm going to drive this whole time. And I think accepting that Gregory is going to be there and befriending Gregory is a great strategy because wanting for these things to go away doesn't always work. And the thoughts will come, even if they're fleeting, even if they're every X amount of time, they'll happen. And it's really good to just know, oh, that's not me. We don't do that anymore, like you said. So that's such a useful tool. And I'm really glad that you brought it up. Yeah, thank you. I, I I use it quite often. And one thing I'll add to it is, you know, Gregory no longer tries to get me to drink anymore. He tries other things. So he gets he's gotten more creative, but I don't want that to scare the person who's considering drinking as like, oh, my God, this guy has 13 months and there's still things going on. This is just me going through life now. And what what he'll do now is, you know, he'll be like, ooh, you want to go spend a lot of money because then you'll become financially insecure. And if you become financially insecure, then you'll have anxiety. If you have anxiety, then you'll have depression. If you have depression, then you'll want to go drink. So he doesn't try to just say go drink anymore. He just tries to like get me other ways. So, you know, like, oh, overeat. So then you get a little bit of depression and you feel like you're not working out enough. And so it's there. It's there to stay. But that's why I have to have a healthy conversation with it and treat it like a sick child as opposed to just ignore it. Because if I don't constantly develop tools, if I don't acknowledge him and face him at, with rigorousness like I did when I drank, I, I don't, I, I'll lose. And I don't want to lose anymore. I want to be there for other people and help them. I am so thrilled that you also brought that up because yes, our voices get creative. And ultimately, I think Gregory wants to save you and has really bad ways to try to prove that. But our brain just wants us to survive. And Gregory is a part Mm -hmm. of your brain that just doesn't know that there are better ways to survive than the ones that he thinks exist. So (laughs) thanks again for sharing that. He's learning. He's learning. (laughs) He's learning. (laughs) Uh, okay, perfect, Taylor. Let's move on. We could talk for hours, by the way. I just want to throw that out there. We may have to bring you in for a follow-up. Uh, that's, I'm, I'm 100% <laughs> open to that. Oh, my gosh. It's, it, I'm, just, I'm really happy to be here. I'm smiling ear to ear. So am I. And we are going to get into the rapid-fire round. So if you can answer the following questions in 30 seconds or less, that would be fabuloso. Are you ready? Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do it. What is your favorite ice cream flavor? Ooh, so actually, I want to say it's a milkshake. It is peanut. Oh, what is it? Peanut butter and banana with candied bacon. Um, that sweet and savory combo. Yes. What would you say to your younger self? Uh, slow down. Be gentle. Be kind. What are some of your favorite resources in recovery? People are uh, definitely the top for books, uh, Wherever You Go, There You Are by John Kabat-Zinn. That one has helped me tremendously. I have five copies of it. <laughs> the Tao of Pooh and the Tay of Piglet. Dr. Wayne Dyer, uh, The Peaceful Warrior. AA, Cafe RE, um, my Marco Polo group. The Calm app for my meditation. 
nature. And then probably uh, the one that I like to use to describe my sobriety today is a picture of two dogs. It's a meme that I've seen. It's a picture of two dogs standing in a mud puddle. And one's a Pomeranian and one's a Great Dane. And the Pomeranian is up to its neck in mud. And the Great Dane is just barely up to, you know, its, its paws. And that's it. And, you know, that's I look at that photo and it has done so much valuable things for me in my sobriety. And that's because I used to be the the Pomeranian. Life hasn't changed in sobriety. Um, I've changed. You know, uh, my my life was a, a, a desolate um, landscape with a bunch of broken rocks. And, you know, I used to be up to my neck in mud. And now I get to be as tall as a Great Dane by using the tools I've gotten in sobriety. And I've been given the tools of a paintbrush to where I don't look at my past anymore as um, ugly and desolate. I get to paint those rocks any color I want them to be. And I can look at those things as all of the things that got me to where I'm at today, to this moment, to this experience, to this conversation. And that's all I have is this moment. The mud is still there, but you're just dealing with everything so differently. Thank you. That was beautifully said. What parting piece of guidance can you give listeners who are thinking about ditching the booze? Oh, I would say to be kind to yourself today and just do the next kind thing, whatever that may be. You know, this is a beast and it is you know, something that I think the latest statistics are like 245 people a day succumb to this. And, you know, that's that's more than all of the other drugs combined on a daily basis and on an annual basis. And that is not to scare you. That is to just let you know that this is not easy and that the best thing that you can do is to open up and connect with other people, other people who are going through this as well. I suffered from terminal uniqueness and I don't want you to suffer from it too. And that's thinking that I am the only one that's going through this. And I hate to break it to you, you're not. And we want to allow you to share and to be open and to be vulnerable and to just join us, you know, and that it starts with opening up and being honest, open-minded and willing. H-O-W. That is how you get started. Before we depart, Taylor, give listeners your own. You may have to say adios to the booze if line. All right. You might need to ditch the booze if you've ever driven to another state to get more alcohol because the stores over there are open until 3 a.m. And I'm talking uh, for my St. Louis peeps out there. If you're listening from St. Louis, you know what I'm talking about. East side. <laughs> Eastside St. Louis, you got to travel across the bridge to get to Illinois. Taylor, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I had a great time listening to you. You are full of knowledge and full of value. You're changing lives with this. So thank you so much. Congrats on 13 plus months. And I'm glad that I get to be in touch with you in Cafe RE. Thank you so much and keep it up. Okay. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Take care. Very well, Team RE. That wraps up our interview for today. And before I say adios, I do want to formally congratulate Paul. I like celebrating. A lot. 
I like milestones, birthdays, holidays, anything that adds a layer of joy, count me in. Life's too short and today is all we truly have. So today, I'm celebrating you, Pablo. We all are. You are so loved, you are so supported, and you are worth it. I know next time I see you, we will eat ice cream with a lot of honey on it to celebrate in person. Recovery elevator, we took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. I love you guys.